I'm the owner of a small diner tucked away in a town somewhere in the middle of nowhere, Kansas. The diner doesn't really get much action aside from townsfolk and the occasional out-of-towner passing through and looking for a hot meal. And when those folk happen to come by, I like to introduce myself, bring them their food, and then sit down with them and explain a little game I like to play to pass the time out here. For some context, I inherited this diner from my parents and have spent practically my whole life in this town, aside from the rare trips to nearby events, markets, state fairs, etc. But those are really only reserved for special occasions. And I don't mind that. I enjoy the peace and quiet that comes with my lifestyle, and I can't deny that as far as lives go, I happen to have myself a pretty good one. I have wonderful friends, the sweetest husband, and a beautiful baby girl named Kate. But as nice as my life is to me, I can't deny that it's also real slow. Not many big things have happened to me, if y'all understand what I'm saying. And so whenever an unknown face walks into my diner, I ask them if they have any stories to tell me. And if they do, I'm always more than happy to give them a discount on their meal. I've been doing this since I was 22, so about 10 years now. Okay, I'm going to admit something a bit embarrassing to y'all. The reason I had when I first started to do this was that I had recently found out about the notion of cryptids, and I thought the concept was pretty damn cool. More specifically, I thought people viewing me as a cryptid would be pretty damn cool. You know, some girl in some diner in the middle of nowhere that you end up spilling your darkest secrets to and then never see again. Wouldn't that be a kind of neat way to be perceived? Well, my spooky little young adult self thought so, and that's where it all began. Normally people are quite hesitant to talk at first. However, they tend to warm up to the idea after I remind them not only will we likely never cross paths again, but I don't care about what kind of story they tell me. Whatever they feel like talking about I'll listen to, I just want a break from the monotony of small town life. And boy, have I heard it all. Love affairs, childhood traumas, crazy deathbed confessions heard by nurses, the story of a very intoxicating and very hush-hush two-month relationship a customer had with another woman in college before she tragically passed in an accident that she's never told a soul about since, especially not her very Catholic now husband. But besides all that jazz, there's one type of story I keep being told. Horror. Now I get why this is. Ghost stories, supernatural crap, whatever you want to call it. That's the kind of thing people are hesitant to talk about. And in my opinion, half of it is because that's the kind of thing people are hesitant to believe. But who cares if you tell it to me? You're not going to see me again, so what's the harm in finally telling someone? It even wouldn't matter if I didn't believe them they'd still get the discount. But I do believe the stories people tell me. It's something in their eyes, I think. When I look into them, I can see they're being haunted by something awful. And I think it helps them to talk about it. To leave here with the knowledge they're not carrying that burden alone. And carrying it with them is something I'm thankful I get to do. I listen to their stories, bring them sweet tea and dessert to cheer them up afterwards. I'll hold their hands if they'll let me and just generally try to help them. It's one small way I can make an impact on some people who are really hurting, being the kind stranger they can confide in, knowing that they'll be believed. But anyways, I've told my husband some of these stories over the years, and he recently started browsing this subreddit, and mentioned to me that I should think about sharing some of them with y'all. And so here I am, sitting in my comfy chair, after my baby girl finally fell asleep with my laptop, 
and my absolutely darling cat, Cinnamon. I really do hope you guys enjoy the story I decided to share today, and I'll probably post some more soon. It was about five years ago now. I think this happened sometime in early July, so it was just after my 27th birthday. A young woman stumbled into the diner. I'd guess she was maybe a few years younger than I was. 23, maybe? Well, the poor thing looked like she hadn't properly slept in weeks, with eye bags so dark I had to take a moment to figure out if they were actually black eyes. She sat down at a booth and I came over to pour her some coffee, which she gratefully accepted. I took her order, waffles with powdered sugar and a side of mixed fruit, and moved to sit down across from her. Instead of asking if she had stories to tell, I decided to ask her if she was all right, as the way her eyes shifted around the room, and the way her hands trembled so violently as she tried to use the cutlery, made me nervous that she was in some sort of danger. She looked at me and her eyes began to water, and in the softest voice you could ever imagine she just told me that I wouldn't believe her. It was here where I explained some of the parts of my game, focusing on the fact that there's really no harm from talking about it if she wanted to. Our paths would probably never cross again. I remember the way she looked down at the table, as her hands moved to scratch quite violently at the skin on her arms, which were just covered in long red marks already. My heart absolutely ached at the sight, but I decided not to say anything for the time being, though it took everything in me not to reach over and take her hands away and hold them myself. Finally, she sighed and met my gaze as she nodded ever so slightly at me. She told me she had a stalker, and not one she thought was human. The first time she saw him was a few months prior, when she was walking to her dorm alone one night, back when she lived right by the Appalachian Mountains. She had gone out with some friends, and didn't realize how late it had gotten, and by the time she had started to make her way home, it was nearly two in the morning. The fastest way to get home meant she had to use a small path that cut through the woods, and she told me she was too worried about the big test she had to get home to study for, to really think about the dangers of walking through there at night. As she walked, she said she got that awful feeling that she was being watched, and out of nowhere she was hit with this horrific wave of anxiety, that her heart began to race like a scampering jackrabbit and she broke into a cold sweat. And then she noticed it watching her through the tree line. It was tall and vaguely man-shaped, although she said she would hesitate to call it that, and by tall she meant inhumanly tall, roughly seven or so feet by her guess. Its skin was a sickly pale and its eyes were bloodshot, accompanied by an impossibly wide grin that revealed way too many horribly stained teeth. From what she could see, the thing was completely hairless and was dressed in camouflage-type clothing, the kind that hunters and the military wear. She said that she froze up when she saw it, staring at the thing in absolute horror, and it just stayed there, smiling at her. Eventually, she snapped out of it and bolted, yet the thing made no move to follow her. All it did was turn to face her and continue to smile as she ran off. She told me that when she got back to her dorm, just got this sudden urge that she was going to be sick. And this was super weird, since the girl had only thrown up twice in her life. Once when she got a really bad case of the flu, when she was ten, and once when she got a little too drunk at a party in high school. Yet she had spent the next ten minutes throwing up everything in her stomach and the next twenty dry, heaving over the toilet. Her roommate had rushed in to find her covered in sweat and violently sobbing as she threw up for no apparent reason. She had tried to tell her about the thing that she saw in the woods, 
but her roommate had told her that she was probably just sick with something, and her mind was playing tricks on her. She said that night she had supposedly had these beyond horrible nightmares, and her roommate told her the next morning she had woken up screaming four separate times. That was her first encounter with the thing, but it certainly wasn't the last. At this point she had begun hyperventilating. Tears ran down her cheeks, and a strangled cry retched itself from her throat. I quickly ran over to the counter to get her some napkins and a glass of water, before I finally gave in and grasped her shaking hands and held them tightly. I had asked her if she wanted to stop, but she just shook her head, and so I held her hands and waited for her to continue with her story. She said she realized pretty quickly that whatever it was came with the night. At first, she genuinely had just believed she had come down with some kind of awful virus. But when she woke up the next morning shaken and exhausted but by all other means healthy, she was very confused but didn't really know what else to do, then email her professor to explain her situation and sit on her couch and watch episodes of her favorite show while she apparently clung on to her roommate for dear life. That was until nightfall came around, and she saw the thing again, and this time it was watching her from her living room window. Instead of freezing up again, she just started to scream, and when her roommate rushed over to see what was wrong, she looked out the window and went pale as a ghost. She asked her roommate if she was seeing it too, and she just nodded before dragging her out of sight from the thing's view and calling the cops. Her symptoms immediately came back, the vomiting, the panic attack-like behavior, the sweating, all of it just like the night before. For some reason, though, her roommate was completely unaffected. Shaken, sure, but no sickness, no nightmares, nothing. Just like the few other people after that who saw it when they were with her, although nobody ever saw it without her. And then the police showed up, and things got even worse. They couldn't brush her concerns off, even in the state she was in. Her perfectly healthy roommate had seen it, too and so they began to look into things, and what they found was absolutely nothing. The thing couldn't be seen on the security camera footage right beside where it had been standing. They couldn't find a record of any person matching its description in their databases. No matter how many times she called over the next three months, no matter the situation, no matter if there was another person there who insisted they saw it too, they couldn't find any evidence of it being there or any record of its existence. She went to a psychiatrist who determined she didn't seem to be suffering from any sort of psychotic disorder, and other doctors at the local hospital ran every test they possibly could to explain her symptoms. Head CT scans, MRIs, they all came back totally clean. She had no head trauma, tumors, or any type of head injury that could be causing hallucinations. Her blood tests showed there was no autoimmune disease that could explain the symptoms. She did gastric emptying scans and other similar tests, which eventually confirmed there was no disorder that could explain the vomiting. The symptoms never happened during the day, during testing, or in any other situation. She never got sick, had any other type of nightmare or hallucination. She just kept seeing whatever the hell that thing was and getting violently ill. Eventually, she decided to just try her best to stay inside after dark, which worked for a while until the night when everything went very wrong. She had gone to a local cafe to get some homework done and accidentally fell asleep at her computer and had woken up to one of the waitresses gently shaking her awake and telling her it was closing time. Their closing time was 10 p.m. The sun had set over an hour ago. Her hands started to shake more violently than they already were, which I didn't even think was possible, 
and she choked back another sob before she continued to speak. She dug through her backpack to find her pocket knife and tucked it into her jacket sleeve before she began to brave her way through the darkness back to her house. The cafe was only a ten-minute walk with the shortcut, twenty if she stayed on the streets. She considered her options for a moment, trying to figure out which was more dangerous. She eventually decided that while the streets would take longer, they were better lit, and maybe still had some people out. It wasn't that late, but this wasn't exactly a college town either. There wasn't exactly a nightlife besides one or two bars. Odds were that she could make the whole trip and run into less than a dozen people. She had made it ten minutes before she got the feeling she got on the path again, the unmistakable feeling of being watched coupled with cold sweats and horrible anxiety. She slipped her knife out of her jacket into her hand and held it out in front of her as her gaze shifted to the nearby alleyway. And there it was, tall and pale as death, with the same bloodshot eyes and smile with too many teeth, and that same damn camouflage outfit it always seemed to wear. Only this time it also held something else, a bouquet of wilted flowers. As the thing held them out to her, she turned and bolted down the street, all thought of defending herself from that thing long forgotten. This time, though, it dropped the flowers and took off after her, and this was the first time she realized just how fast it actually was. She told me she had always been a good runner. She did track in high school and even made the state finals, and this was without a doubt the fastest she had ever run in her life, but this thing somehow caught up to her in a matter of seconds, and then it reached out and grabbed her shoulder. At this she took her hands away from mine and pulled down one of the sleeves of her yellow cardigan, revealing her bare shoulder and my breath caught in my throat. On her shoulder was a large scar resembling the shape of a hand, palm on the shoulder itself, the outline of long fingers marking the top of her arm. My first thought was about the time I was 17 years old and saw a story about a woman who had acid thrown on her face on TV. It looked almost like that but if a person with inhumanly long hands somehow managed to cover their own hand in acid without injuring themselves, and gripped her shoulder as hard as they possibly could, or maybe like a third-degree burn in the shape of a hand, like if it was from a person who was made of pure fire. She sniffled softly, which pulled me out of my thoughts. In a whispered voice, she told me that the doctor said whatever burned her ate away the fat and a good portion of the muscle in that shoulder. She can barely lift that arm now, as the tears ran down her face, she talked about how the pain she felt in that moment was like nothing else she'd ever felt before. She couldn't even describe it. She remembered collapsing to the ground, screaming bloody murder, and right before she blacked out, she said she saw the thing lean over her, and with that horrible smile still on its face, it hissed out one word to her. Soon. She woke up in the hospital two days later. Even after the wound healed, the pain never stopped and never got better. And that was it. That was the final straw for her. She withdrew from college, packed up her things, and moved states to live with her parents again. And for one week, things seemed to be okay. She thought maybe, maybe it didn't follow her here. Until a bouquet of the same wilted flowers and an empty chocolate box stuffed to the brim with human teeth and fingernails appeared on her parents' doorstep. It got closer after that, more and more bold, until the night when it actually knocked on her window banging on the glass with an almost maniacal frenzy until the police arrived. By that point, of course, there was nothing there. Not a trace. Since then, she's just been driving around the country. Her parents have been sending her money for food and motels. 
She figured that if it took a week to get from her old town to her parents' house and only seemed to come out at night, then maybe she could keep ahead of it if she just kept moving. After a moment of stunned silence, I asked if I could hug her and rushed over to pull the shaking girl into my arms as soon as I got a nod of approval. I spent the next half hour gently stroking her hair as she sobbed into my shirt. I wanted to help this poor girl so badly, but deep down we both knew there was nothing I could actually do to keep her safe. But I told her the meal was on me and I took her back to my house. It was still light out after all, so I figured it was safe. I let her take a long shower and helped bandage up her arms, made her dinner, and introduced her to my cat. And then I cut up some fruit and placed it in Tupperware containers along with some cookies and gave her directions to the nearest motel. I still think about that girl all the time. It's been half a decade, and I haven't heard anything about her since. I don't know if she was taken by that thing or if she managed to outrun it, but I still pray every single night that one of these days she'll walk back into my diner and tell me the story of how she defeated that monster over more waffles covered with way too much powdered sugar and a side of fruit. Just in case I don't make it away from this thing, I'll leave this for an explanation. I am, as my father was before me, a man whose collar could compete with the sky's hue. My calloused hands are a testament to that. With a stature that could rival some ball players and a lack of aptitude for education, I was a football coach's star child, though unfortunately my NFL dreams are far behind me. Taking advantage of what God gave me, soon after high school I worked construction where from dusk to dawn I slaved till my back begged for a reprieve. Nevertheless, I wasn't taught to complain and I never did. Somebody had to lay down supports and the job didn't get finished quicker by whining. After a quarter of my life passed, I soon realized that as much as I wanted to hold true to my father's ideals, my body was ready to call it quits. Hearing about an opening in a trucking company from a friend, I seized the opportunity without even a second thought. I'll never forget the feeling I got from stepping high into that seat and watching how the beast came alive. The rumbling under my feet from the cab's humongous engine slowly began to be my comfort as I passed from province to province. Aside from my dog, of course. I found him as a mangy lab whose skin practically stretched over its ribs. The animal was uniquely dark, could probably disappear when night falls, and its eyes matched its striking appearance. They seemed to always look for something to explore. Seeing the state it was in, I'd be heartless not to give it a place to eat. Since then, it had been my support throughout most of my hardships. I'd grown accustomed to running my hands through its fur instead of pouring my sorrows into a drinking cup. And without change, here that same dog was accompanying me on another outing. Making sure I had everything I needed in the cab, food, water, and the such, I turned to the dog curled up in my seat. As I gave him a soft pat, the truck came to life and so we began the trip. As usual, the drive didn't come with much entertainment. I watched tirelessly as car upon car passed by on the sun-beaten pavement. My one break in the noise was the sunset spreading out colors of red, purples, and yellows. Even so, that was quickly replaced by stars laid across the night. I leaned back in the leather seat and laid my hands behind my head. Before I knew I was sleeping, I woke up. To my shock, Flat grassland had been replaced by trees that seemed to block out the moon, and between them, no light escaped. The vast warped branches spanned out, almost touching the asphalt of the road. The only thing I could clearly see was the path in front of me. 
Still half awake, I quickly took notice of my dog's whines, pulling over on the side of the road and letting the animal out to go do its business. As I viewed from the agape door, the dog made its way from the rocks deep into the cover of the tree line. I turned my head away and began scrolling on my phone. Worry began to settle after 15 minutes ticked past. I let out a whistle. Here boy, let's get out of here. For a few moments, the only thing that greeted me was the impasse of bark and foliage cloaking whatever may hide behind the surface. Then, as if on schedule, my dog clambered out of a break in the tree line. Where have you been, buddy? I chuckled softly. I was worried sick. The second its ears perked up to the sound of my voice, the animal became rigid. His body turned to me like he was attached to a spinning rod. A dead stare that went right through me matched my gaze. It sent a shock down my spine. It was out of character for the thing to move so strictly. My dog held the same unwavering stare and with every second passing, I could feel my heart pound harder in my chest. Then, he opened his mouth and began to let out this guttural moan. It was deep, quiet, and alien. Ignoring the primal voice screaming to get out of there and quick, I gave a look to the animal standing more still than the deep pine beside it, illuminated only by the light of the truck cab. It was a howl, I rationalized. Dogs do that. For the first time in God knows how long I took my eyes away from the tree line and onto the clock I kept on my dash. Before I could even make out the numbers on the clock, I saw in my peripherals something that sent fear down to the core of my heart. I slowly turned my head, and as if to confirm the feelings of horror, my whole body turned to ice. Upright on my two legs, and without breaking the leer, it gave me, it again began to vocalize. Where? It let out in the same jarring tone. Have. It spoke with long pauses between the letters, and it stretched out the vowels. In that moment, no matter how big I was, or the size of the truck, a primal feeling of being some animal's prey struck every bone in my body. I slammed my door shut as it sounded out the word you. As though he clocked in on my escape plan, it began making its way towards with its two back legs, not once taking those eyes off me. It leaned back and forth as it stepped, increasingly upping the speed. I finally took heed of the voice screaming at me to run, and pressed the monstrous car to the highest speed it could go. And though I expected it, dread still wormed its way through me, as I saw the animal in pursuit in my rear view, albeit slow enough to give me enough time to stop at a motel and collect my thoughts. That's where I'm at now, writing this. I'm watching and waiting in case that thing figures out how to open doors. I don't think regular human beings are prepared to come face to face with what was, what is, and what is to come, all in the same teary-eyed, naive, thoughtless gaze. It's too much for our small minds to handle, I think. I've experienced that once or twice in this lifetime. Taking a Michigander and shipping him off to a foreign land where nobody knows anything about you except your last name and rank can be overwhelming to say the least. It may be nihilistic of me to think so, but listening to the sounds of artillery rip your friends to shreds, hearing them call for God, their mother, or any other variety of final requests they may make, knowing their demise is nearing with every second, puts the value of individual lives in perspective. By the time the black suits and billionaires decided the fighting was done and I was sent home, I had nothing but a small satchel of personal effects, used battle rags and nightmares, 
I had forgotten what it was like not to sleep on four-hour intervals trading time with a fearful, wide-eyed kid from the Bronx, or a too-cool-for-school black kid from the South, with the occasional appearance by the freckle-faced kid from down the street that enlisted with you, hoping he wouldn't die alone in a trench full of strangers, which of course he did. Either way, I made it home in one piece. On the morning of July 26, 1959, 15 years after my return home from the Pacific, my clammy hands making the ink of the morning paper bleed onto the countertop as I stood wide-eyed, taking in the absolute horror of a story that I had found nestled between the personal ads and the sports section. It would be a falsehood for me to say the small voice in my head wasn't pleading to the universe, that it was fiction with every word my brain tried desperately to process as I scoured the story, which stretched nearly the entire page. A new recurring column, perhaps? As if the world wasn't full of enough horror, at least for the working-class Joes like myself. The story detailed the gruesome journeyings of a couple of green, naive kids from my hometown. According to the story, on August 16, 1936, a Sunday, the boys were experiencing the standard end-of-summer blues and wanted to finally do something daring, more daring than sneaking out or making prank calls like most 15-year-old boys do. On that day, these two young men decided to poke around one of the two abandoned copper mines located on the outskirts of my hometown, Copper Hollow, Michigan. The town was cleverly named for the copper mines, which were first discovered by miners from the northeast, who followed the large river that ran through my town down south. The mines provided a huge economic boom for the area, and Copper Hollow quickly sprawled into what it is today, which is still a small town by most people's standards. Unfortunately for the mining industry, both of the mines were closed down in the early aughts under circumstances that rang mysteriously, to say the least. I remember my father telling me at the time that a lot of the miners were getting sick, not from the mining itself, but from something else down there. A lot of the guys that descended into the sprawling depths of the mines came back different, to say the least. Many of them would be committed to the asylum up in Traverse City, but even more would just starve themselves to death without the courage to kill themselves off quickly and with too much fear to continue living. My father said that it was all a bunch of ghost stories to keep people out of the mines. Officially, many thought the workers went on strike. Being miners at the time made very little and never returned. Others thought the copper ran dry. Many that were close to the workers who were laid off at the time of the mine's closing all claim that there were other, far more powerful and sinister things at play that forced its closure. Nevertheless, the mining ceased, and the formerly mineral-rich ground was sealed forever, or so I thought. According to the article, the workers, in a craze, boarded up all of the entrances except for one. This specific mine shaft was one of the first to be closed down, and was forgotten when the rest were sealed up. I remembered the initial story back in the 30s almost immediately. It was unclear to the authorities which of the two boys decided to convince the other to explore the abandoned mine, or which one of them objected, if they objected at all. If you're superstitious like me, the first thing you'd wonder is what possessed these two young boys, who grew up hearing about how dangerous the mines were, and how eerie the circumstances of their closing were, to one day decide to venture into their abyssal depths. The article went on to recap from its initial story that despite the best efforts of law enforcement, of course, 
Only one of the two boys, a kid named Billy McKinnon, a young Irish fellow a few years younger than myself, made it safely back to the surface. The child was immediately rushed to the asylum 50 miles north of here for questioning, babbling on about some of the most horrifying things you've ever heard. From the beginning, they tried their best to pin a murder on Billy. The case had two major problems, the first being that no corpse was ever found, and the second being that police were convinced by the insane babblings that he made from the moment of his capture that he not only didn't know where he was or what he was doing, but didn't hold the mental capacity necessary to stand trial for murder. They shipped him off to the asylum in Traverse City, where he remained until today. The story indicated that after all this time, after years of authorities from multiple agencies contacting him, trying to get closure for the Jacobs family, a family I'd known through other acquaintances, he had finally decided to come forward with his portion of the story, to clear his name, and agreed to finally speak to authorities. A week after reading the article, I ran into a family friend of mine by the name of Archie Rucker, now a detective, who informed me he was in the fluorescent-laden room when the now 38-year-old Billy was being questioned. Initially, according to Archie, Billy seemed too scared to talk, but once pressured, he gave a full account of the events that took place, and even now I find it hard to comprehend exactly what Archie told me was said. To make sure they got everything, they brought in a stenographer from downstate, near Mount Pleasant, I think. Under the table, Archie sent me a copy of the transcript. This is what they were able to type out between the babbling and groaning from McKinnon. On the morning of August 16, 1936, my best friend in the whole world, Alex Jacobs and myself, decided that we were bored. To us, we were far more bored than any of the other kids in the neighborhood, whose parents had spent hundreds of dollars on toys, vacations, and expensive frozen desserts to beat the heat of the Midwestern summer. We were broke, with only a few cents for the occasional Coca-Cola, a couple of comic books, a deck of worn playing cards, and the type of vivid, at times explicit imagination that ranged from deciding whether the Three Stooges or Popeye would win in a fight to observing how much bigger Laura Crowley's chest had gotten over the last year. Boy stuff. In the shadow of the morning sun, we talked over the activities for the day, beginning with riding our bikes along the same trails of the town square, buying an ice cream soda from the creepy corner store owner they see every day for groceries anyhow, strolling the park, or doing something different, something fun, something dangerous. Honestly, a part of me wanted to one-up Alex on the toughness scale, and another part of me didn't understand what we were agreeing to, or understand the powers that be that aligned our destinies on this sunny, perfect morning. Regardless, somehow, we agreed to explore one of the abandoned copper mines, a former source of prosperity, peace, and happiness that slowly turned into a cesspool of legend and mystery. The first mine was out of the question. Unlike the haphazard exit of the second mine, the first had been demolished using dynamite when it was shut down to avoid anyone ever entering. Plus, that mine didn't come with the shock factor the second mine had. The second mine was the one that carried the stories of ancient power, political and economic corruption, and the allure of a dangerous, daring adventure. I'm sure you can understand that a lot of this is a blur to me. I don't remember which. But one of us decided on the second, and the other quickly agreed. The forgotten entrance we decided to use was a long-time hangout of some of the older teenagers, ne'er-do-wells, and miscreants for as long as I can remember. On this particular day, 
The entrance to the mine was untouched and unguarded, which left a perfect opportunity for us to not only enter the mine unbothered, but also unseen and undetected by the watchful eye of anyone who would try to stop us if they saw us. The entrance to the mine began small enough that we had to duck to get inside, but then opened up into a large towering cavern, lined with railroad ties, rope and nails, the diameter of a dollar piece, a sturdy piece of architecture to be sure. My father is a steelworker, so I stole a couple of his big flashlights to make sure we didn't go in blind. I knew he wouldn't miss them. We wouldn't be gone that long. When I first entered the mine, turned on the flashlight and looked around, I felt the eagerness of a child on his first Christmas. My eyes ran rampant across the fixtures of rock and wood beams, taking in every inch of the caverns, memorizing their position, taking everything in. This was in part driven by the fear of getting lost in the unexplored territory, and part eagerness to find the next portion of the tunnel that led deeper into the mine. Alex was the first to find the next tunnel, to the left of where we entered, in a seemingly obvious part of the cavern. He approached it first, slowly, flashing his light inside to illuminate, even if ever so slightly, the path ahead, and he entered with extreme caution to explore the next room. I followed him closely, feeling a lump in the back of my throat. It was very odd, being that I didn't necessarily feel fear, but I knew I had no idea where the tunnel led. Along the tunnel floor there lay pickaxes, barrels of safety equipment, rope, and crates of rock that appeared to contain a shiny ore. I thought to myself at that moment, it was a bit peculiar, even if the miners rushed out, to leave the equivalent of unclaimed money laying in the halls of the mine shaft. But honestly, I didn't think too much beyond that. The tunnel seemed to go on forever. It felt like we were walking for ages. My feet began to get tired, and I felt the overwhelming urge to ask Alex to turn back and leave with me. At that moment I felt a stronger urge to continue exploring. It reminded me a lot like the anticipation of going on a vacation, or to a football game, something that I'd looked forward to for a long time. As we entered deeper into the mine without thinking about it, I felt the ceiling get shorter and shorter. This continued until we were waddling like ducks along the floor of the tunnel. Finally the tunnel opened up into a large stone room. The walls were smoothed down, as if it were intentionally built at the end of this tunnel. What was odd, and unsettling to say the least, was the lack of edge to anything in the room. Even the corners that led to the floor had a rounded edge to them, and even more, the entire room seemed to be made of one solid stone. Alex and I both stared in awe at the room around us, and it took us a moment to finally realize that at the far end of the room lay a large stone structure. We slowly approached it, initially thinking it was some sort of makeshift break area for the miners, but it wasn't. It was unlike anything I'd ever seen before. It was clearly much older than the mines, and truthfully, much older than anything I'd ever seen in real life. It reminded me of some of the ancient Egyptian and Mayan structures you'd see in National Geographic. I walked toward the base of the structure and I saw something that, even now, is extremely odd. There was a large book, like the kind you see in the library that has old newspapers in it. The great big books. This one was different, though. Instead of the standard brown cloth binding, this book was very ornate. The book itself was bound in a leather of some kind, unlike anything I had ever seen before. It was black in color, but contained sparkles within it, 
like the kind of metallic paint you see on a car. It was mesmerizing. The odd part wasn't the book itself, interestingly enough. The odd part was that even though the book was clearly very old, perhaps hundreds of years old, there wasn't a speck of dust on it. It appeared to be brand new. I slowly lifted the heavy cover open and shined my light on the pages. Written over and over on every page, for the entirety of the book were the words, written in a dark black ink. The great dreamer's reign is near. Be ye ready. As the book went on, the writing became fainter and fainter, as if someone sat down in front of the book and wrote out this phrase over and over, in one sitting, as if they were running out of ink. Suddenly, towards the end, the ink changed. It went from a dark black to a deep, viscous red. I quickly shut the book in horror. After that, I didn't know what to think. The thought of being in the cold, dark cavern, it was like I was feeling the tension of thousands of years of ritual and supernatural occurrences weighing me down, began to make my blood run cold. Everyone had heard stories of mysterious beings and energies dwelling deep within the mine, and this seemed to confirm that. It's very easy to see how horrifying it would have been to be in that place now, but in that moment, it felt like every second of my life led me to this moment. This moment of clarity, this moment of understanding, this moment of finally realizing my greatest purpose. It was like I'd wanted to be here my entire life, though I knew in the back of my mind that wasn't true. As we stood there for a moment in the complete silence and solitude of the underground cavern, Suddenly Alex got my attention and directed it towards the ceiling, where an even larger structure jutted out from the wall creating a large effigy. The carving, even now, I have a hard time describing. If you were to ask me what I saw, I would say that I saw the head of a large black squid attached to a human body with black scaly skin, posed as if climbing through the wall towards us. Its arms were stretched wide as if almost embracing those in the room. The eyes were what terrified me the most. They were burning red, searing, as if they could see into my very soul. On the walls around us we began to notice further carvings, which created the impression of wings. For a moment, just a moment in the dark, I could have sworn I saw it breathe. Even now, I wonder if I saw anything at all, or if my mind tried desperately to fill the void of some traumatic event, or some underlying fear that I carried with me into the cavern. Another part of me knows for certain exactly what I saw there. We stood and marveled at the sheer architectural feat that the effigy was for a moment. It felt like we could stand there forever, taking in every painstakingly carved out detail of the effigy. Out of nowhere my ears began to focus on a sound coming from behind the stone structure. It sounded like the slow drip of a tap that wasn't completely shut off. I saw Alex look in the same direction I was, and flash his light that way. We walked around toward the back of the structure, using our hands to guide us along the smooth, cold limestone towards the source of the dripping. As we made our way around, there was a small opening in the rock, smoothed to a round edge, that led to a large staircase, the only right angles in the place, that led down into a dark abyss. Alex and I looked at each other, both of us scared out of our minds. No turning back now, Alex said, his voice calm and confident contrasting completely from his scared, timid nature that I had become familiar with over the course of our friendship. We nodded to one another and slowly made our descent into the depths of the abyss. Our flashlights at this point were no help, as they only seemed to show the next ten stairs or so. We took each step slowly, carefully, 
never a step out of place. In the quick glances I took at the walls of the staircase, I noticed the same characterization of the effigy above in various scenes. The one I remember best was one of the effigy coming out of a large body of water. I don't remember more than that, but I know they lined the entire staircase. At this point, we had been climbing down deep underground for what felt like forever. If I had to guess, I would think we went down at least 10 to 12 stories. The dripping seemed to get louder and louder until it was almost like the sound of a waterfall. Finally, halls of the staircase opened up to a slightly larger room, smaller than the first cavern, but with the same smooth stone walls. In the center was a pool of water, maybe six or seven feet in diameter, with a slow, soft drip coming from the ceiling dropping into it, making the sound. From here, the dripping sounded much calmer, much softer than in the staircase we had traversed. We approached the pool and shined our lights inside. It was the most beautiful, clear water I'd ever seen. At this depth, it even had a slight blue hue to it, like the ocean. Alex seemed much more enthralled by it than I, but it was extremely beautiful. The longer I looked at it, the more I wanted to touch the immaculate blue water. Suddenly, I became thirsty, thirstier than I'd felt my entire life. I'd have given anything for a Coke from the creepy corner store at the end of the block or even the lukewarm water from the hose at home. But I knew, I knew for sure, that the best water in the world was in that pool. My long, pasty white fingers slowly drifted down towards the water to retrieve a drink for myself. As they slowly, daringly approached, the feelings of desire for the water only grew. But before I could take a drink, Alex quickly placed both of his hands, making a bowl out of them, into the cold, dark water, pulled them up, and drank. Alex paused for a moment, his eyes wide, and he began to quickly gulp down the water like an animal. I didn't know what to do. Yes, the water looked good, and yes, I wanted to drink it. I don't know what it was about seeing him drink the dark blue cave water, but it made all desires to drink the water fade away, as if they never happened in the first place. All I could feel in that moment was dread. It felt like I was waiting for something horrible to happen. It's like watching a horror movie, waiting for the inevitable entrance of a monster in the form of a jump scare. But this time, a monster didn't come. I couldn't watch him drink anymore and turned away. In place of a monster, and I know this will sound crazy, a voice began to speak inside my head. For a moment I had to convince myself that it wasn't my own thoughts, but the thoughts of another, more powerful force. The voice was deep, gravely, and sounded like a demon if you put it through a distortion machine like they use for movies and in recording studios. The tone of the voice was somber and absolute, with the level-headed delivery that you'd expect talking to a deity. Did you hear that? I asked Alex, my eyes veering back to him for the first time since he drank the water. Alex was staring into the pool, unmoving, his attention focused completely on something moving in the water. Alex, are you okay? Silence. This isn't funny, Alex. We need to go. I got up to leave, and he grabbed my wrist with strength I'd never seen from him before. He pulled me back to the kneeling position I had taken up next to the pool, and turned to lock eyes with me. But they weren't his eyes. His eyes were a black void. A void that I can only liken to that of the backdrops of movies that take place in space. Absolute nothingness. No emotion. No empathy. Just an endless void. Did you understand what the great old one said, Billy? Who? What are you talking about? You heard the voice, I replied, 
In this shrine, the great dreamer's slumber has been interrupted. Alex, you're scaring me. I... It was at that moment that I noticed the long, thick, rope-like tentacle sticking out of the back of Alex's head. It was surrounded by a steady stream of crimson blood. In a flash, Alex's body was plunged into the pool, the entirety of him disappearing into its cold depths. I looked deep into the water, frozen in fear, trying to find any signs of life. Just as quick as he went into the water, I saw something begin to float towards the top of the pool. I slowly peered over the edge to get a better look, and suddenly I was face to face with my best friend, frantically trying to swim to the surface. I screamed for him, oh how I screamed for him. When he finally looked like he was about to crest the surface, he stopped. It was like he ran into a plate of glass. He started to bang his hands against it and it was clear he couldn't get through. I wanted so desperately to just reach in and grab him, to rescue him, to save him. I wanted with everything in my heart, body, mind, and spirit to help my friend out of that pool and to leave that place forever. I sat there frozen, willing my body to move, willing myself to reach in, grab his hand, and end this horrible adventure we had so innocently begun together, but could end with his death. His knocks became fainter and fainter, and I watched in horror as he fell deeper into the depths. As he descended into the darkness of the pit below, I could make out the faintest outline of a tentacle wrapping around him, dragging him down to his demise. A lot of what happened after that is a blur. I don't know if I screamed, cried, or did nothing at all. I don't remember how long it took me to traverse the staircase back to the large cavern, but when I reached the top is when I began to regain my full awareness of my surroundings. As I turned the corner around the large stone structure that led us to the staircase in the first place, I came face to face with a room of twenty or more hooded individuals, each holding a gas lantern, a flame enough for me to see the dark black metallic fabric of their robes, adorned with golden sashes. They began to chant in the same language I had heard in my head in the cavern below, and I prepared to meet a similar demise to my friend. Their tone was not that of a hostile force, nor that of a friendly one. Their tone was almost fearful, yet calm and accepting, like the prayers of a convict on their way to the gallows. I slowly began to make my way around the outside of the room, following the wall to the entrance Alex and I had used to enter the cavern. Once I found it, I ran as fast as I could down the tunnel toward the large cave we first entered through. When I finally got there after what felt like ages of running, my eyes found the tunnel with the faintest light pouring into it. My heart jumped as I quickly traversed it to the surface. As I felt the crisp, open air reach me, I closed my eyes to shield them from the afternoon sun. The clouds had passed. My eyes slowly began to adjust to the outside, my vision beginning to darken as I normalized the world outside of the mine. The horrible sight that my eyes saw as they opened can only be explained as demonic and unnatural. When I opened my eyes, I saw nothing but long, green pastures, land that stretched for miles beyond where my hometown once stood. Gone were the streets, the cars, the buildings, and most frightening of all, the people. Above me, the sun was moving across the sky at a rate I could perceive with the naked eye, much faster than usual. As night came, the moon moved faster across the sky. The days began to fade by quicker and quicker, turning into months and years, all before my very eyes. I began to see structures emerge from the ground, blurs of people swirling around the new structures, the emergence of technology, and my hometown returning to the state it was when I left it. 
I felt like it seemed to freeze in that time for just a moment before the sun and the moon became even faster, the stars moving so quickly that the sky became white with starlight. At once, when the copper hollow that I knew and had grown up in had died away, with only the bones remaining and new, silver structures lining its freshly paved city-like streets, the curbs lined with small spaceship-like vehicles. The sky faded once again to dusk and stopped. To my right, along the river, the wide expanse of the river began to move as a large, horrifying being emerged from its depths. I can picture it so vividly, yet the words to describe it are unknown to me. I don't think that humans are ever supposed to see anything like that unless it's the last thing they ever see. The only thing I remember was a large black mass, shiny, scaly skin, claws, and a face of tentacles, but most of all, the huge blue and green eyes. The article concluded that just as Billy McKinnon was describing the horrible sight of the ferocious being he saw emerging from the river on the date in question, he suffered a massive heart attack and died within seconds. With the new evidence, the police decided to search the mine again, using Billy's account as a roadmap to Alex's last known whereabouts. They found the large cavern that Billy talked about, but the book and the carving were missing. As they descended into the staircase, just where Billy said it was, behind a corner of rock, they found the pool. Next to the pool, with rope wrapped around his neck, was the body of Alex Jacobs, still wearing the same clothes he was reported to be wearing when he disappeared in 1936. Every inch of the corpse was inexplicably soaking wet. A part of me wonders if they heard a mysterious voice, all their lives, slowly whispering into their deepest recesses to convince them to venture in. Perhaps they were able to hold off such calls into the voids of the mine for years, their impressionable state as very young children, allowing them to buy into their parents' pleas to never enter there, but no longer. Perhaps some ancient force existed beneath the mines long before the first humans set foot in this land. Perhaps it was always meant to stay hidden within the hills and mountains, but the miners somehow discovered it and released it. If Billy is right, there is no stopping the force that lies in the depths of that mine shaft, or any other forces like it that have operated all around us for millions of years. From my very temporary short existence, it can be easy to infer that, if after all this time they've laid dormant outside of those few outliers who choose to tamper with it, that it will not threaten our species. Even if we were to threaten their incomprehensible power outright, the only path that our young naive species as a whole can go down, like Billy and Alex, will lead to the entirety of our consciousness screaming into an unanswering void, begging for the release of death and the blissful ignorance of such unknowable, unimaginable horrors that await within the black indifference of the universe beyond, the entities there, by their very existence alone, preying on the deepest, darkest fears of our race. Fears that are so locked away deep within the fabric of our reality that we cannot pretend to understand or comprehend them. It was just another ordinary evening when I clocked out from the factory, worn from the day's labor. The air was brisk, a premonition of the approaching autumn as I made my way to my rusty pickup, eager for the warmth of my home and the comfort of my bed. Driving along the winding roads, the countryside was as silent as the grave, 
save for the crunching gravel under my tires and the low hum of the radio playing old country songs. It was a drive I'd taken countless times before, a lullaby in its familiarity. The cloak of darkness felt comforting, the loneliness of the road a respite from the world's chaos. And then I saw it. Out of nowhere, it appeared in the beam of my headlights, standing eerily still at the side of the road. A deer. At first I felt a jolt of surprise, followed by relief. Just a deer, a common sight in these parts. But as my eyes locked with its own, a chill ran down my spine. Its eyes were not the simple, innocent orbs of a forest creature, but something far more haunting. They were startlingly human, filled with an inexplicable depth that drew me in. As I slowed the pickup, half expecting it to dart away, it did something that made my heart thunder in my chest. With an uncanny grace, it rose, standing tall on its hind legs, its gaze never leaving mine. My breath hitched as I stared at the spectacle before me, my mind racing to make sense of the impossible scene. Was it a trick of the light? Or maybe fatigue playing games with my perception? A deer standing on its hind legs? My tired brain struggled to comprehend. But there it was, a silhouette illuminated by my headlights, as real as the cold leather of my steering wheel. I reached for my phone, my hands trembling. By the time I fumbled to switch on the camera, the deer had dropped on all fours and disappeared into the darkness. I sat there, heart pounding, the echo of that haunting gaze still imprinted in my mind. Finally, I shook myself out of my daze, the radios crooning suddenly loud in the silent cab. I drove home, the image of the upright deer flickering in my rearview mirror. I told myself it was fatigue playing tricks on me. I was just tired, overworked. My mind was seeing things that weren't there. Yet, as I turned the key to my front door, the cold biting at my fingertips, I couldn't shake off the feeling that what I'd seen was real. I locked the door behind me, the house eerily silent, and looked out the window into the dark night. Out there, somewhere, was that deer. And with a chill that had nothing to do with the cold, I realized my comfortable familiar world was no longer the same. And sleep when it came was filled with dreams of hauntingly human eyes and a deer standing tall on its hind legs. Days turned into weeks, and the memory of the deer was a persistent ghost at the back of my mind. I tried to dismiss it, tried to bury it under the monotony of work and the familiarity of home. I convinced myself it was nothing more than a product of exhaustion. But the universe had other plans. One evening, as I was returning home from the factory, I saw it again, its silhouette outlined by the setting sun, standing at the edge of the woods bordering my home. My heart sank as it slowly stood on its hind legs, just as it had that night. The world seemed to hold its breath, and in that suspended silence, I felt my pulse quicken. The deer's gaze found mine, its eyes burning into me with a strange intensity. Fear gripped me in its cold embrace. It wasn't a trick of my tired mind, it was real. But how could it be? The deer's presence became a dark constant in my life. It began to appear more often, not only by the roadside, but within the confines of my safe, familiar world. I would catch glimpses of it lurking at the periphery of my yard, its eyes eerily reflecting the moonlight. It would be there when I woke in the early hours, standing unnaturally on its hind legs, watching my house from a distance. It was even in my dreams, its presence punctuating my restless sleep. It didn't behave like any deer I knew. It didn't startle at sudden movements or run away when I attempted to approach it. 
It just watched me, its eyes filled with an unnerving intelligence. It was as if it knew me, understood me in ways I couldn't comprehend. People started to notice my distress. My colleagues would ask if I was okay, commenting on my pallor and the dark circles under my eyes. My friends questioned me about my distracted state when we met at the local bar. I tried to express my fears, but how could I explain it? How could I put into words the irrational terror of a deer standing tall on its hind legs? It was ludicrous. So I laughed it off, attributing it to work stress and lack of sleep. But inside, I was anything but all right. The line between my mundane reality and the surreal presence of the deer was blurring. Each day was a battle between trying to forget and the fear of its next appearance. At night, I would lie awake, staring out my bedroom window at the shadowy forest line, my heart pounding with each rustle of the leaves. My world had narrowed down to the anticipation and terror of my next encounter with the deer. And so, the very thing I had considered a hallucination had invaded my reality. My home, my sanctuary, was under siege by a creature I didn't understand. Its eyes haunted my waking hours and infiltrated my dreams, making me question everything I had believed about the world and myself. The silent watcher in the night was there, always there, like a specter in the twilight, and with each encounter, I felt myself being pulled deeper into the heart of the mystery. Little did I know, the real nightmare was just beginning. My life, once so unremarkably simple, had spiraled into a restless obsession. The deer had turned from an unusual specter into my living nightmare. Its presence seemed to seep into my daily routines, the inexplicable terror of it gnawing at my sanity. Sleep had become an elusive friend. Every creak of the old house, every rustle of the wind against the windows, would jolt me awake, my heart pounding with the thought. Was it outside? Was it watching? Nights transformed into an exhausting vigil, my eyes glued to the shadowy expanse of the woods, searching for its silhouette. Work suffered as well. My hands, once steady and assured on the factory floor, now trembled subtly. Concentration was a thing of the past. My thoughts invariably drifted towards the enigma that had invaded my world. The camaraderie of my colleagues turned into concerned whispers and questioning glances. Relationships strained. My friends couldn't understand the sudden change, my constant distraction, my reluctance to join them for our customary Friday night drinks. Even my family grew worried. My mother's voice, usually filled with light-hearted chatter during our weekly calls, had taken on a tinge of worry. I wanted to tell them, wanted to spill out my fears, but the words wouldn't come. It was ridiculous, I knew. A man haunted by a deer. The absurdity of it would surely invite laughter, or worse, concern about my mental state. So I bottled it up, plastered on a fake smile, and assured everyone that I was just tired, a little stressed from work. But in the solitude of my home, I was a prisoner of my fear. I began to research, desperate for an explanation. I devoured articles about deer behavior, reached out to local hunters, even posted on online forums, narrating my experiences under the veil of anonymity. But nothing explained the deer's peculiar behavior, its unnatural stance, its unsettling intelligence. If anything, my attempts to find answers only heightened my anxiety. In my desperation, I installed cameras around my property. I thought if I could record it, get tangible proof, maybe I could find a way to deal with it. So I spent countless hours watching grainy footage, my heart jumping at the smallest movement. Yet the deer eluded my attempts to document it. 
It seemed aware of the cameras, its appearances growing less frequent and always just out of clear sight. It was as if it was mocking me, playing a cruel game with my sanity. I was sinking deeper into a pit of paranoia and obsession. My reality was blurring. The lines between my mundane existence and the supernatural presence of the deer growing increasingly obscure. I was losing myself to fear, each passing day chipping away at my resolve. As the shadows of my once peaceful home grew longer, I realized I was spiraling. The once dismissive fear had grown into a full-fledged paranoia. I was living a waking nightmare, my life a strange dance with a deer. And as the nights grew darker, so did my fear. The chilling anticipation of my next encounter with the deer, a constant terror gnawing at the edges of my sanity. My life had become a twisted echo of its former self. The familiar humdrum of factory noises, the comfortable solitude of my home, the hearty laughter of friends, all were now distant, smothered under the heavy shadow of my obsession. The deer, my silent tormentor, had consumed my every waking thought, and the dream-filled sleep that occasionally came was filled with visions of its haunting eyes. There were times I found myself questioning my sanity. Was I hallucinating? Was my tired mind conjuring this eerie apparition, making me dance on the strings of my own fraying sanity? I would stand before the mirror, staring into my haggard reflection, searching for a hint of madness in my own eyes. But all I could see was fear, raw, visceral fear of the unknown. It was a chilling realization, understanding that I had become obsessed with a creature I had initially dismissed as an illusion of fatigue. The once passive dread had morphed into an active pursuit, my life revolving around my next encounter with the deer. I continued to pore over articles and forums, the blue light of the screen becoming my constant companion during sleepless nights. I turned my home into a fortress, investing in more surveillance equipment, mapping out the deer's possible routes, and trying to predict its behavior. It felt like I was chasing shadows. My attempts to understand, to rationalize, to somehow control the situation only led to more frustration. The deer always seemed one step ahead, as if it was aware of my desperate attempts. But the terrifying ordeal was not just the deer or its unnatural behavior. It was the transformation of my own self, the man I was becoming in the face of this inexplicable terror. The constant dread, the insomnia, the paranoia, they were reshaping me, sculpting a new version of myself that I barely recognized. In my desperation for answers, for closure, I made a decision. I had to confront it, face it head on. It was a terrifying thought, meeting the source of my fears in the flesh. But the idea also held a glimmer of hope. Maybe this could end my nightmare. My days were spent preparing for the encounter. I gathered tools, flashlight, a knife for protection, and a courage I wasn't sure I had. I meticulously planned, charting out the ideal location and time based on my previous encounters. At night, I laid awake, my mind filled with countless scenarios, each more terrifying than the last. I saw myself standing in front of the deer, its human-like eyes staring into mine, its body towering on hind legs. The thought made my skin crawl, but I clung onto it. This was my fight, my chance to reclaim my life. As the day of confrontation neared, a strange calm descended upon me. My fear didn't lessen, but it mutated into a constant, pulsating dread, like a second heartbeat. I had no idea what I was walking into, no certainty of what I'd find, and the prospect was terrifying. Yet, amid the swirling chaos of fear and anticipation, a thought persisted. Perhaps my obsession, 
my relentless pursuit, was not just about the fear of the unknown, but a desperate plea for understanding. Understanding the deer, understanding my own fear, and ultimately, understanding myself. As the night of the confrontation descended, my heart pounded a war drum in my chest. The familiar landscape of my home felt alien under the moonlit sky. Each shadow seemed to stretch longer, each sound echoed louder, and within me, fear wrestled with resolve. Armed with a flashlight and a knife gripped tightly in my hands, I stepped outside, the cool air laced with an electric tension. Every crunch of the gravel under my boots felt amplified, each rustle of leaves a harbinger of the coming encounter. I made my way towards the woods, the beam of my flashlight cutting through the inky darkness. The trees stood silent, like spectral spectators to my trembling courage. As I tread deeper into the quiet, my senses were heightened, each shadow and sound a possible sign of the deer's presence. And then, I saw it. It stood at the edge of the clearing, its form cloaked in darkness yet unmistakable. The deer. I froze, my heart threatening to leap out of my chest as it slowly lifted onto its hind legs. In the face of my nightmare, my fear gave way to a strange sense of awe. It was a chilling sight, the deer standing upright, a silhouette against the muted moonlight. Its eyes found mine, a pair of glowing orbs filled with an intelligence that unnerved me. I approached, each step deliberate and slow. The deer remained still, its gaze never leaving mine. A part of me wanted to flee, to escape the terror that wrapped around me like a shroud. But I held on, pushing through the icy tendrils of fear. Why? I found my voice my words but a whisper against the quiet night. Why are you doing this? The deer didn't react. It just watched me, its eyes burning into mine with an intensity that sent shivers down my spine. I was close now, close enough to see the heaving flanks of the deer, the dusting of frost on its fur. I stretched a trembling hand, my breath hitching as I touched the cold reality of my fear. It was a surreal moment, touching the creature that had turned my life into a waking nightmare. Its fur was rough against my fingers, its body solid and real beneath my touch. Yet its standing posture, its gaze, they were as incomprehensible as ever. The deer didn't flinch, didn't retreat. It just stood there, watching me with those unnerving eyes, my hand resting on its body. It was as if it had been waiting for this, waiting for me. As I stood there, my fear receding into a sea of unanswered questions, I realized I was a part of something greater something beyond my comprehension. My fear, my obsession, had led me to this, a strange communion with a creature of the night. I didn't get any answers, no closure or understanding. My confrontation didn't solve the mystery. It only deepened it, wrapping me tighter in its enigma. But as I turned to leave, my hand lingering on the deer before finally retracting, I felt a strange peace. I was still terrified, still lost in the labyrinth of my experience. But I had faced my fear, touched it, looked it in the eyes, and that in itself was a victory. Days turned into weeks, and then months, yet the mystery remained unsolved. My life was no longer the same. Every day held a silent anticipation, an underlying tension, the unvoiced question, when would I see the deer again? But the deer didn't reappear. Its haunting presence, once a constant shadow, had vanished, leaving behind a chilling absence. My home returned to its peaceful solitude, the forest by my house merely a backdrop to my ordinary existence, 
no longer the stage for my midnight encounters. But I was changed. The terror had etched deep scars on my psyche, the residue of fear and undercurrent in my everyday life. The deer, even in its absence, continued to exist within me, a reminder of my descent into obsession and my confrontation with the inexplicable. My colleagues noticed the change. I was more withdrawn, my usual jovial demeanor replaced with a quiet introspection. They attributed it to work stress, never knowing the true reason behind my transformation. I didn't correct them. It was easier to let them believe the mundane explanation. At night, I found myself gazing out of the window, my eyes drawn to the edge of the forest. The deer was gone, but its memory wasn't. I would stand there, lost in the puzzle that had become my life, the vision of the upright deer forever etched in my mind. I never understood what the deer was, why it behaved the way it did. Was it a figment of my tired mind, an undiscovered species, or something more, a bridge between the world I knew and one I couldn't comprehend? I grappled with these questions, but answers remained elusive. The mystery was a puzzle with missing pieces, an enigma that evaded comprehension. I had to accept that there were things in this world beyond my understanding, experiences that defied explanation. But with acceptance came a certain peace. The fear that had once consumed me was now a silent companion, a part of my existence. I had confronted my nightmare, lived through it, and survived. The experience had changed me and transformed my perspective of the world and my place within it. So, life went on. I resumed my routine and found solace in the familiarity of my job, the comfort of my home. The days turned into a monotonous blend of ordinary and extraordinary, the memory of the deer a scar on the fabric of my normalcy. And so, my tale ended where it began, on a quiet, lonely road, under the watchful eyes of a million stars. I was a man changed, shaped by fear, haunted by an experience that defied understanding. I was left with a memory, a mystery, and a terrifying encounter that would forever remain an enigma. The story of the man and the deer was over, but the echo of its memory would resonate within me, a haunting melody to the tune of my changed life. The unknown still terrified me, but it was now a part of me, a chapter in the book of my life forever imprinted on the pages of my existence.